Welcome. You are listening to Bible teaching from Island Community Church in downtown Memphis, Tennessee. We hope today's message helps you grow in relationship with Jesus. You can access more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church at iccmemphis.com. Thank you for listening. Well, if you've got your Bibles this morning, I would encourage you to get them open to the book of Romans. Today, we're going to be starting chapter 2 as we look together at verses 1 through 16. And the focus of today's message is the religious need the gospel. I'm Barrett Bowden, lead pastor here at Island Community Church, and I welcome you this morning. I am truly so, so grateful uh, for our church family. I'm so grateful for each one of you. I love you so much, and I pray that you would know today how much you are loved uh, by God, but also by us as a church family. Today, we continue our series, What He's Done. Anybody excited? All right. We have been studying here in the book of Romans uh, for the last month or more, and today we continue. This is the sixth message in our series, What He's Done. If you've missed any of the messages so far, I would encourage you always to consider catching up, going back online. You can either watch or listen, but today we continue forward with chapter two. As a recap uh, of where we've been, this book is all about the gospel. We've been talking about the gospel extensively as we have looked at this book because as Paul writes this book to the church of Rome, truly, he writes with the gospel in his mind, in his heart, and with his pen. And we've been talking about again and again what the gospel is. It is the what? The good news. All right, can we try this again with a smile on our face, a little bit of energy in our voice? You got an extra hour of sleep last night, I heard. Or some of you still woke up with your body clock, who knows? But let's try it again. The gospel is the what? Good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to save all who trust in him. We just celebrated baptism this morning with Tony and what a great celebration. That's why we all clap, right? He comes out of the water and we're celebrating with joy what God has done for Tony. And for all of us, we recognize what great news it is that God so loved us, that he gave himself for us, that anyone who turns and trusts in Jesus can be saved. What great news it is of God's great kindness, his grace, his work on behalf of us as we trust in him. And truly, Paul's been talking about this again and again and again. Our our theme verses so far have been Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, many of you, I would hope, most of you have these memorized, and so what I'll ask you to do is uh, whether you read them on the screen or whether you close your eyes and and, and recite them from your heart, uh, let's read these together. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to, to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul has been outlining, he introduced the gospel, he talked about how he's coming to the church of Rome to minister in the gospel. In these verses 16 and 17, he explained the gospel. And then as we got through to the end of chapter uh, one, starting in verse 18, we began to see this reality that Paul begins to introduce. Because Paul begins to say, now, you need to understand that this gospel is needed. This news is needed. It's not just nice. It's not just feel good. It's essential for you. Because without this, you will perish. You will live forever apart from God. This this news of what Jesus has done is essential for you to understand. Because without it, you will have no relationship with God. So he goes into some bad news so that we can better appreciate the good news. And he talks here In verses 18 to 25, I'm just giving a recap of where we've been about how the gospel is needed because for every single one of us, the reality in our life is that God's wrath is deserved. 
Now, you ask, well, wait, God's wrath is deserved for, for who? And what I told you as we began to study in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, was that what Paul begins to do is to explain how the wrath of God is deserved for different categories of people. In verse 18 to 25, excuse me, 18 to 32, where we just got finished studying after the last several weeks, he began to describe to us how the gospel is needed, God's wrath is deserved for non-religious people. In other words, for Gentile people. But now, as we turn the corner into chapter two today, what we're gonna be looking at is how Paul begins his discussion of how the gospel is needed because God's wrath is deserved not only for non-religious people, but also for religious people. So if you've got your Bibles, Romans chapter two, Starting in verse 1, in today's focus, as we look at the religious need the gospel, we're going to look at verses 1 through 16. God's Word says this, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and, and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. This is God's word. Today, if you have something to write notes with, I would encourage you to do so. I always uh, love it when our church family really is seeking to not just listen to a sermon, but also really understand God's Word. God's Word is wonderful, and it is my great joy this morning to be able to help you just to know God's Word. And I'm really excited and really thankful that so many of you are so eager to learn God's Word, and hopefully even this week, uh, have conversations about it uh, in community group or in conversation over coffee with friends or on walks or whatever. So this morning, if you're taking notes, like I said, the title of today's message is Paul going, yo, the religious, yo is what I added, by the way, the religious need the gospel, okay? The religious need the gospel. And again, just so that you can kind of understand the structure of what's happening here, 
we're in this middle section here as Paul is helping all of us see our deep, deep need for Jesus Christ. That is Paul's aim in this section, and that is my aim as your pastor, exposing God's word to you this morning. I am praying that God would help you to see your deep, deep need for Jesus Christ. I am praying that God would help you to recognize how desperate you are for Jesus and ultimately how wonderful Jesus is and his grace and his love for you. So this morning, the religious need the gospel. Now, right out the gate, something really interesting happens. He shifts. Do y'all notice here in verse 1? He says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Now, it's real interesting because in chapter 1, what was he using? He was using they, 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 verses 18 to 32. You'll look back and you'll see it. Here in chapter 2, he shifts to, okay, now you, you, you. Now, you got to ask yourself, um, who is the you that he's talking about, all right? Clearly, if you read the text, um, it's more than just a single person, that, like a single individual that he's got in his mind as he's writing this letter, sending it off, traveling to a place that he's never been. It's, it's more than just a single person. He's speaking here to a group of people. Now, the reason I know that it's to a group of people is if you go down in your Bible, he actually identifies who this you is, and it's in the verse that is right after the one that we're, we, we stopped with today. It's in verse 17. But if you, do y'all see this in your Bible? If you call yourself what? A Jew. So what we know Paul is referring to is the Jewish people. So when he uses the term all through this section, you, he's referring to the Jewish people. Now, I'm using the phraseology, the religious, okay, as we talk about this section. Because yes, in Paul's day, he's talking about the Jewish people, but what we know about the Jewish people is they were the chosen, quote unquote, people of God. They were the people who had God's law, who lived, worked very, very hard to keep all of God's standards, God's rules. Um, They were absolutely devout in their religion. So when Paul describes here, therefore you, What he's referring to here is a group of people, a group of religious people in Paul's day, the Jewish people. Now, very, very interesting um, because essentially in Paul's writing, what's happening is it's very common, by the way, in writing in Paul's day for a writer to kind of let you listen in to a conversation with himself and a representative of another viewpoint. So essentially Paul's writing to this group of people, this religious people, and he's letting you listen in to a conversation that like he's having with this group of people. And that's exactly what's happening. Now, what's interesting is what is his intent in this section? And his intent is very clear right here in verse one. Do y'all see this? He says, therefore, which by the way, this is a carryover Okay, from chapter 1, if you go back in your Bible to chapter 1, verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. He went from that point to talk about the non-religious and the Gentile people, but now he's coming back to that same point and he's going to apply it to the religious people. What is his point here? Therefore, you have what? Look at the phrase. No excuse. Where have you heard that phrase before in our study of the book of Romans? Do y'all remember? Look back at chapter 1. Do you remember verse 20? When he talks about the Gentiles and how they have seen God in creation They know enough about God to have known that he existed and known that they were accountable to him, and yet they've rejected him. 
And Paul went on and on about how they had made idols in their hearts and they had turned from the creator to the created, from the natural to the unnatural. Do y'all remember all that conversation? And he says here in verse 20, the latter part, so they are what? Without excuse. They're without excuse. Now what's happening here, it's almost like Paul... Um, was sitting there imagining as he's writing this here, verse 20, and he's talking about how the Gentiles have turned from God and they have done what ought not to be done. And the wrath of God is, is being revealed against this ungodliness and unrighteousness of man looking at how they have turned to all these other kind of idolatrous things And it's almost like as Paul is writing it, he's imagining a religious person over on the side going, "Mm -hmm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's right, what he said, Mm -hmm." mm-hmm. I've got two girls, I've got two daughters, I love them both to death. Our oldest daughter has the oldest child syndrome. Do you know what I'm talking about? We have an eight-year-old and we have a two-year-old. Our oldest daughter, the eight-year-old, love her to death. I was just like her when I was eight. So as I talk about her, I'm talking about myself. When the, our younger daughter does something to where, you know, they, they get in some kind of argument and our youngest daughter, who's two and is learning to share, takes something or like hits, you know what I'm talking about? And I step in, Emma Grace, you know, the dad voice, you know what I'm talking about? Emma Grace, do we hit? Do we share? And I correct Emma Grace, it, it is almost without fail that Caroline will go, hmm. <laughs> you know, and it's like she just has this moral superiority like, mm-hmm, see, I've learned to share. I mean, I'm like, you're eight for crying out loud. <laughs> of course you know how to share. Of course you don't hit. But she'll, st- she'll sit there and it's almost like she gets enjoyment. <laughs> Some of y'all are laughing too much. Is this you? Um, it's almost like she gets enjoyment out of seeing me correct the bad behavior of our youngest. It seems that Paul, as he's writing this chapter of Romans, and he's stepping in to correct the non-religious, he's stepping in to call them out on their rejection of God and their rebellion against him, that he's imagining an older brother or sister. He's imagining a religious person standing over to the side, almost happy to see these folks get in trouble. Almost smirking a bit like, oh, huh? The occasional amen. Of course God's wrath is against. They are so immoral. They are so far from God. Those adulterous people, the sexually devious, they worship animals. They dabble in darkness. But not us. We have the Word of God. We don't live immorally. We're good. Mm hmm. And yet, they're missing the whole point. Yes, Paul talks to the non-religious and describes the unrighteousness and the malice and the envy and the murder and the strife and the deceit and the maliciousness and the gossips, the haters of insolent, the haughty, the inventors of evil, the disobedient, the foolish, the faithless, the heartless, the ruthless. Even though they knew these, they should not do those things, they, they did them and they gave approval to those who practiced them. Yes, that's them, but wait a second. Therefore, you, you, standing over in the corner, going, "Uh uh-huh, you, you also have what? No excuse. The main point of the sermon this morning is this. We'll walk through it together. Don't be fooled. The religious have just as much need for the gospel as the non-religious. For God judges all of us 
equally. Do not be fooled. You who have that tendency to look over and go, mm hmm, you better be careful. Do not be fooled because the religious have just as much need, just as much need for the gospel as the non religious. For God judges all equally. I can say it this way I'm just substituting for that middle phrase a different phrase. Don't be fooled. The religious are just as guilty as the non-religious, for God judges all equally. Or I could say it another way. Don't be fooled. The religious are just as deserving of God's wrath as the non-religious, for God judges all equally. We all say this main point with me. Don't be fooled. The religious have just as much need for the gospel as the non-religious, for God judges all equally. There's only two main sections in the passage that we're going to be looking at today, and I want to outline it in the following way. In verses 1 to 5, essentially what we see Paul doing is exposing the superiority of religious people. There is a problem that often happens in religious people. People who are quote unquote good people, people who do well, who keep the rules. And the problem that Paul's gonna expose is you often think that you are better than other people. And I wanna show you that you are wrong. And the second part of the passage is in verse six to 16. And that is that he wants to actually show you why it is so important that you as a religious person recognize that you're wrong, and that is because of the way that God judges. God judges in a way that we need to understand. And so the two parts are verses 1 to 5, religious superiority exposed, and then in verse 6 to 16, God's judgment explained. Everybody good? So we're going to start with verses 1 to 5, and we're going to look at how God through his word, exposes religious superiority. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Here's what Paul's saying. Okay, when you go judging, if it's a religious person, you go judging the non-religious, you are casting judgment on yourself because you do the same things. In other words, none of us, this is gonna be hard for some of us, okay? Please know that this morning, um, if you feel convicted, it's probably not from me. It's probably a work of God in you, and I pray that you'll just stay open to the Lord, because this morning, I know, I know myself, I know defensiveness starts kicking in, and we can start avoiding or excusing or explaining away that maybe this is not me. But I've just said, all of us are in desperate need of Jesus, okay? So this morning, it would behoove you if you would open yourself to God and say, God, I'm willing to be wrong here, okay? Here's the thing. No one truly lives up to their own standards. Certainly no one lives up to God's standards. But even if you evaluate your own life, you do not even live up to your own standards. In chapter 1, what you have to realize is that the non-religious were guilty not just because of the actions that they did with their bodies, but because of the attitudes that rebelled against God in their hearts. Often what happens is, for religious people, you'll go and go, well, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, I didn't do that, in terms of the actions of other people. 
But what God is trying to get your attention to see is it's not about the actions of the body as much as it is the inward posture of your heart. The actions come from the attitude. And over and over and over and over, God is relentless in his focus upon our hearts. Again and again and again and again and again, though, it seems somehow that religious people, moral people, behaving people, rule-following people, it seems again and again and again, if you just look at the way Jesus interacted with people in the Gospels, it is those people who somehow miss it. They miss that it's actually about the heart. It's not about the behavior. God wants the heart. That's why in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes out and he says, you've heard it said to those who are of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable of judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Oh, religious people, it's easy to go home at night and go, well, I did not murder someone today. I am really good with God. I am a special person. I'm better than those who murdered someone today. But isn't it harder to go home at the end of the day and let God test your heart? Have you been angry with anyone today? Have you treated one, anyone today, as if they were not worthy of love? Careful, patting yourself on your back about, I didn't murder because I am looking for a heart of pure love. He goes on to say, you have heard it said, and this is Matthew 5, 27, 28, that you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh, it could be easy at the end of the day to go home and say, well, I've not slept with someone that was not my spouse today. But what if you go home at the end of the day and evaluate, really let God evaluate, I have not looked at someone who was not covenantally mine with any kind of lust in my heart. See, again and again and again, Jesus focuses on our hearts. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 and 26, some of his most scathing words are to religious people. Why is it because religious are worse than the others? No, it's because he knows that he's got to get through to them or else they could end up relying on their good behavior when at the end of the day, they need a heart transplant. So he's, he's, his words are cutting to religious people. Matthew 23, verses 25 and 26, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. These are religious rule-keeping people. Woe to you, hypocrites. He says, this is the Greek word for play actor. You're just acting. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. He's saying you're all concerned with the outside, your behavioral stuff being right, but I'm looking at your heart and there's gunk in there. There's moldy oatmeal stuck down on the inside. You've got to recognize that it's not about cleaning up the outside so you could put it on the shelf and all go, ooh, look at that pretty bowl because I see that that bowl is not fit for use. And the inside Something needs to change. Verse 27, 28 of Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs. Outwardly appear beautiful, but on the inside, full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within, you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Going back to Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O oh man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, when you recognize it's about the heart, when you recognize it's about rejection of God and rebellion against God, you do the same thing. It manifests in different ways, but on the, in, on the inside, God sees you. And you need to change. 
This phrase here, passing judgment, I want to spend a moment just talking about it. What are we talking about when we're talking about passing judgment? What we're talking about here, so the Bible over and over and over calls us to judge rightly. In other words, there is such a thing as an absolute truth. And I fear today that many of us, we think that being judgmental, quote unquote, in our culture means that we cannot hold to what is true and what is not true, what is right and what is wrong, that we can't hold to absolutes. And that's not true. Um, the Bible absolutely tells us to discern between what is true and what is not. We absolutely are called to make judgments in that way according to God's word all the time. But there's a difference in making that kind of judgment and passing judgment that we're talking about here in this passage. When we're talking about passing judgment, what we're talking here is about us feeling better about ourselves because as we look at others, we feel, well, they're worse than we are. And therefore, someone else being, quote unquote, worse than us is somehow giving us a boost to our own sense of self and confidence and righteousness before God. We're talking about here condemning others while excusing ourselves. John Stott says this, be careful, be careful. We can find all kinds of excuses for our sin. We were tired, we were provoked. It was a lesser evil, while at the same time being fast to notice and condemn it in others without even considering what burdens they may be carrying. Condemning others while excusing ourselves is what allows us to hang onto both our self-righteousness and our sin. We can feel good about ourselves while indulging in what makes us to feel good. And God says, I see you. You have no excuse. Every one of you who does this, I see you. And he goes on in verse two and he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice these things. In other words, all the while <laughs> you are condemning others and you're excusing yourself but you need to know something. God is not fooled. As God looks upon your heart, he is not fooled. You may fool yourself. You may fool other people. But as God looks upon you, you cannot fool him. He sees you as you are. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. When God judges us, he'll use our own standards. The very judgments that we've made against other people will be the standards that we are held to. Do you remember when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 verses 1 to 5, judge not lest you be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your eye? You hypocrite. First take out the log of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take out of the speck that is your eye. The big question here, verse three. Do you really suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself? He's talking to you. If you feel the conviction of God today, if this is you, the big, 
big question for you. Do you think that you will escape the judgment of God? At the end of the day, do you think that in the end, as you get with God, and it's just you and Him, do you really think, knowing what you know about yourself and knowing what you know He knows about you, that you will escape Him? That you will appear righteous before Him? Do you really think you might have spent all your energy making yourself feel good because others are worse than you? Making yourself feel good because you've made yourself better than others? Making yourself feel good in all kinds of ways? Excusing yourself, defending yourself, while at the same time condemning others. But in the end, when it's just you and God, do you really think that you're going to escape His judgment? And the answer for all people, for all time, is what? No. No. And we know the answer. We know the answer. No. The issue is, here in verse four, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? What he's saying here is the root problem for all of us is rejection of God in the heart. In other words, what he's identifying here in this verse is that here in verse 4, what he's saying is, in the heart of the religious people, there has been a lack of repentance. God has been rich in kindness. He has been rich in forbearance. He has been rich in patience. And yet, verse 4 describes, this was all meant to lead you to a place where in your heart, You were right with God. You were surrendered to God. You were in love with God. But the problem is that you have rejected God in your heart. Now, this is interesting because the root problem of the non-religious was what? A rejection of God in the heart. And now he's saying the root problem of the religious is what? A rejection of God in the heart. Tim Keller, who... I think you know that I love, um, gives such brilliant gospel insight in so many ways. Um, It's interesting, he makes a point where he says this, the self-righteous religion is just as much a rejection of God and a misunderstanding of his character as the self-centered irreligion at the end of chapter one. An atheist suppresses the truth about the existence and nature of God and uses God's gifts to indulge their own desires without giving glory or thanks to the giver. It's a presumptuous contempt for his kindness, an attitude which scoffs at the idea of God's wrath, not recognizing its present reality nor realizing that the only reason its full and final arrival is held back is because the Lord is patient, not wanting any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But then, this is exactly what Paul says in Romans 2.4, but he's speaking to a religious person. A self-righteous person will acknowledge the existence of God, but then see no need for him. They're doing well enough for themselves. They are their own savior. Ultimately, they deserve glory for themselves. And it's the attitude of the person who welcomes God's wrath on others, but thinks that they themselves are entirely exempt. They see no need for repentance. They have no realization that God is kindly holding back his judgment in order for them also to turn to him in humility and for mercy. This too is a presumptuous contempt 
for his kindness. And then he goes on to describe that the end of chapter 1 in Romans and the beginning of chapter 2 in Romans is essentially a kind of retelling of the story of the prodigal son. Y'all know the story of the prodigal son? Luke chapter 15? Two brothers, do y'all remember? One good father. The younger brother who loves sex with prostitutes goes out and squanders the dad's money. He's licentious, he's materialistic, he's disobedient to his father. But then there's a second brother. He's the obedient one. He's compliant with everything the father says. And yet, at the end of the parable, the point of the parable is that both of the boys are lost. Both of them are alienated from the father. Both of them need salvation. And Keller says this. Romans 1 is about younger brothers. And Paul says they're lost, they're condemned, they're worshiping idols of the hand. Sin, the kind of sin everyone thinks of as sin. But now he turns to the older brothers in Romans 2. And he says, you people who are trying so hard to be so good, you think that God owes you because you're better. But you are lost too. The issue is the same in both hearts. It's just manifested in different ways. A rejection of God in the heart. And in verse 5, Paul says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So interesting, these two words here in verse 5 echo the same words that are often used in the Old Testament to describe idolatrous behavior, like in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verse 27. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Don't regard the stubbornness of this people or the wickedness of their sin. And what Paul is doing is applying the same attitude of the heart that the Jewish people were familiar with in the idolatrous ways that they studied in the Old Testament. He's applying that same attitude of the heart to them, the religious. And what he's pointing out to them is that they too have idols. Idolatry can happen just as much with the religious as it can happen with the non-religious. And the idolatry or the religious looks like this, where your self-worth ends up being rooted in your own morality. And your savior, you end up turning to your own behavioral rule keeping, your own ability to do right, to do good, to try hard. What Paul exposes is that in the end, the religious are in the same boat as the non-religious, storing up wrath for the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He's saying in the end, your heart is going to be laid bare. And there's gonna be no hiding where you've relied on. And if in the end it is proven that you have relied on yourself, that you've turned from God. Yes, one brother turned from God, relied on self, and squandered in all kinds of crazy behavioral stuff. His rebellion was very apparent by his behavior, but the other's rebellion was not as apparent because he was right next door to dad at home trying to keep all the rules, be the good guy, but he was doing it because he felt that he deserved something if he did well, which is why he had such trouble celebrating the grace that the father gave to that younger son when he came home. He didn't feel that he deserved that grace because he hadn't done the good things that I had done. He's saying, and in the end, if it's exposed that that's your heart relying on yourself, don't you see? You're in the same boat as the other. We desperately need Jesus. Now I want to close this message by pointing out to you 
these important points about the way that God judges. Because if you don't understand how God judges, then you could, in the end, think that you're going to escape his judgment. So I'm going to briefly, and I mean, we're going to make a quick list, okay? I'm going to walk through the list of things that Paul names as descriptions of God's judgment. And then later, I pray, you'll go back and have time to meditate on these as we see them revealed in Scripture. We start with number one. God's judgment, number one, reflects reality. Reflects reality. Verse two. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So in other words, God's judgment, when it comes, it actually reflects on the reality of the situation. It's not based on the way that you've put yourself, position yourself with other people, or even the way you try to position yourself with yourself or with God. It's actually based on the truth. God's judgment is always just. Number two, God's judgment allows no exceptions. God's judgment allows no exceptions. And by the way, I need to tell you, all of these in this list, I have summarized from a brilliant exposition of Sinclair Ferguson. Some of you guys know the great Scottish pastor who's now pastoring in the States, but uh, he was incredibly helpful in his exposition of Romans 2. I read widely as I prepare for sermons, and I always want to make sure that when I'm directly using the work of another, I'm trying to cite it for you. So Sinclair Ferguson, uh, later repeated by Tony Morita, now repeated by me, that God's word doesn't change, okay? And so I'm just trying to say, this is not Sinclair's words, I've summarized them, but my work was built largely off of his in this particular passage. Number two, what did I say? Allows no exceptions. We live in a social media day where literally you could get raked through the coals if you don't give proper references. And so always, uh, I am trying to go above board with you guys because I want to make sure that you guys know that plagiarism is not acceptable, okay, in any form and including in the way that I preach. Number two, allows no exceptions. Verse three, do you suppose, O oh man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape God's judgment? In other words, what he's saying is there's no exceptions. It's typically your response to go, well, I, well I, maybe I'm an exception. We all think that we're an exception to everything. Have you noticed this nowadays? We are the exception to every rule, it seems. And this is certainly true of the Jewish people and religious people who thought they had been given certain privileges. And Paul goes, no, God doesn't grade on a curve if you've been in church every Sunday. God doesn't grade on a curve if you're part of a particular family or a particular ethnicity. There are no exceptions to his righteous judgment. Three, God's judgment, number three, should bring repentance. It should bring repentance. It should cause you, knowing that God is a just judge, should cause you to cry out to God and say, oh God, I need you. Verse four, or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you where? To repentance. God's kindness some of us go, well, you know, in the end, you know, God is gracious. And we presume upon his grace and we presume upon his kindness and we presume upon his love. Yes, he is a loving God. Yes, he is a gracious God. Yes, he is a kind God. But don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to a point where you go, oh God, I am so broken. I need you. Oh God, would you fill me completely? Would you change me? Oh God, I'm so sorry for my rebellion and my rejection of you. Oh God, I'm coming home. Please forgive me, God, I wanna be home with you. That is what it looks like to really have an understanding of God's grace. We don't presume upon God's grace and then go do whatever we want. God's grace is meant to lead us back home. The younger brother had a thought of his good father and he made his way back home. Number four, God's judgment punishes the unrepentant. God's judgment punishes the unrepentant. Verse five, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. In other words, for those who do not repent, who continue to rely on self 
who continue to dabble in sin and who do not repent of their rebellion and rejection of God, there is coming a day that God will judge you. This is not popular today. We don't like talking about the wrath of God or the judgment of God, but friends, time is running out. Death is a reality for all of us, unless Christ comes first. But either way, when you die or when he comes again, you will stand before God and you will give an account. And if you have not repented in your heart, if you have not turned from yourself and your sin, from your rebellion and your rejection, and turned to Christ and begged for his mercy and salvation, if you have not done that, you will receive a life of separation from God forever. That is the promise of God's word. Fifth, God's judgment is based on our real actions. God's judgment is based on our real actions. Verse six, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. In other words, he's saying here, God's judgment is based on what you've really been what you've really sought, what you've really done. Um, There are those who in a right heart have borne fruit, good fruit that yields the fragrance of godliness. But there are also those who in their heart have been self-centered and focused on sin and rejected God. And, And the fruit of their life, even if it looks good to others on the outside, God can, can, can sort it out in the end. He can separate the wheat from the tares and the sheep from the goats. He knows your heart. And at the end of the day, it's based on your real actions. Number six, God's judgment has eternal consequences. Has eternal consequences. Verse seven and eight, he says, to those who are right in heart, he'll give eternal life. To those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, there will be wrath and fury. And this is for eternity. Number seven, God's judgment is pronounced individually. God's judgment is pronounced individually. Notice over and over in these verses, the phrases, each one, for instance, or here in verse nine, every human being who does evil Or in verse 10, glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. God's judgment happens on an individual basis. In other words, you don't get to heaven because of your mom or your dad or because you were a citizen of America or a member of a church. Um, Every person must believe upon Christ personally in order to be saved. Everyone personally must come to a point of brokenness and a cry for God's mercy. This is the way that God judges. Number eight, God's judgment is without partiality. Is without partiality. We see this in verse 11. The, literally the verse, you guys, okay? I think you can agree with me on this point. For God, y'all can read it with me. For God shows no partiality. The Jewish people obviously were thinking that they would be an exception because of their special privileges. But what Paul says is God judges equally, even-handedly, regardless of ethnicity or background. Sure, there are certain privileges given to Israel, but those privileges came with responsibilities. Having privileges would be one thing, but responding rightly to those privileges is a whole nother thing. And the reality is having privileges does not keep you away from God's impartial judgment. You need Jesus. And there's no partiality to the way that God judges. Number nine, God's judgment is for everyone, regardless of how they receive the law. We see this in verses 12 to 15. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged under the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, their law to themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, 
while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What he's saying here is whether one sins without the law, he's talking here about the Gentiles, or whether one sins under the law, he's talking here about the Jews, both are condemned apart from Christ. To the Jew, what counts is not having the law, but being a doer of the law. You've got to respond rightly to the law. We just talked about that. For the Gentiles, y'all know the Ten Commandments, right? Everybody familiar with the Ten Commandments? These are like the basic building blocks of morality, okay? Like everybody in the world knows you shouldn't kill someone. Like everybody in the world knows there's a God. You need to honor him. Romans 1 talked about that. Everybody in the world knows. Like you shouldn't commit adultery with somebody who's not your spouse. There are these basic sense of right and wrong. So even to those who had the specifics of God's law and to those who did not have the specifics of God's law, what he's saying here is that God judges everyone regardless of whether they're under the law or not under the law, because God has made some things just plain, even if they didn't have the special law, they knew enough to be accountable to God. And those who did have the special law certainly had enough to be accountable to God. Everyone comes under the judgment of God, whether you've received the law before or not. That's Paul's argument. Number 10, God's judgment reaches to the secrets of our hearts. And I draw to a close by pointing this out, and then our last point, number 11, right after it, will allow me this morning to close because at the end of the day, this is where I want you to be. This is where Paul wants you to be. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. This is reminiscent of what Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 speaks of, talking about the secret things of the heart. God does not see as people see. God looks upon your heart. And God sees you and your desperate need for him. Oh, you need a savior. And how interesting, point 11, that the last characteristic of the judgment of God is that this judgment is in the hands of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 16, God judges the secrets of men by who? Christ Jesus. told you the main point this morning is this, don't be fooled, for the religious have just as much need for the gospel as the non-religious, for God judges all equally. Another way of saying it is, don't be fooled, for the religious have just as much need for Jesus as the non-religious, for God judges all equally. On the final day of our life, we will not be able to hide behind the idols of our heart. We'll not be able to hide underneath religious observances, under good behavior, so to speak. We'll not be able to hide under, well, People thought of me as this and this, you know? Matthew 7, there's a very interesting story there of Jesus going, there's some who on the last day are going to go, but I, I did this and I did this and people called me this. And on the, in the end, Jesus says, he's going to look at some and say, depart from me. In the middle of all the things that they are going to throw at the book going, but, 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 He's going to say, but I never knew you. At the end of the day, the idols of our heart will be exposed. We'll no longer be able to hide underneath our religious observances.
But I take great comfort in this fact. I think about the parable from Luke 18. When Jesus tells a story about two men who go into the temple and one stands in the corner with his chest puffed up saying, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like these other sinners. And I've done this and I've done this and I've done this and I've done this. And they pride themselves on their goodness before God and how observant in their religion they've been. But he said, but there was another man that went in and he got down on his knees and he beat his breast and with great cries and anguish, he said, oh Lord, oh Lord, Jesus, would you have mercy on me for I am a sinner. And Jesus says, out of these two men, only one went back to his house right with God. And it was not the one who stood in arrogance and self-righteousness in his religious observance and thought, oh, how great I am for all that I have done and all that I am, how much better I am than these other people. No, it wasn't him. It was the one who humbled himself. And the brokenness and humility and received the mercy of God as he begged for God's grace. And Paul says to you, for by my gospel, in the end, God will judge. But I am not ashamed of the gospel. I point you back to Romans 1.16. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, the religious, and also to the Greek, the non-religious. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. For as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Friends, I want to call you today to Jesus. I want to call some of you older children in the room. I'm not necessarily talking biology, but by attitude of the heart. who have a tendency to look down on other people while excusing yourself, to feel better about yourself because of the badness of others. I want to call you to look within your heart and see your brokenness and your desperation and your need your own rebellion and rejection of God that manifests in a different way called religion and good behavior. And I want you today to say, oh God, would you take me into a deeper place of awareness of how much I need you and help me, God, to realize that you came for me too. You came to save me. You came to give a righteousness that I couldn't give on my own. You came because I need forgiveness. I need grace. I need a change from the inside out. Oh, God, would you help me to stop cleaning up the outside of the bowl when, God, I need you to clean my heart. Oh, God, I believe you today. I believe that you have the power to change my heart. Would you pray that with me today? Oh, Father, today, would you give grace to us? Because today, God, we are in desperate need of you. Thank you, Father, for your word. Oh, God, thank you for your son, our savior. Thank you so much for your Holy Spirit that is at work even right now. And Lord, I pray today for those who are here and they've been depending on something other than you. Oh, God, I pray that today you would break them. Oh, God, I pray that they would come home. I pray, God, that they would despair of themselves, that they would stop thinking that anything they do contributes to right standing with you. Oh, God, that they would wholly depend upon your mercy. Oh, thank you, Jesus, that even now your arms are outstretched. You're ready for us to come home, that you want to throw us a party, that's a party of your grace. Oh, God, I thank you that you love us. I thank you that you worked for us. I thank you, God, that you obeyed for us, Lord, and you give perfect righteousness. I thank you, God, that you went to the cross and you give perfect forgiveness. I thank you that you are a giver of love and kindness and grace. Oh, Father, I pray today that we would just come home to you. God, that we would be broken before you, that we would, like that man in Luke 18, just get on our knees and just cry out, oh, Lord, would you have mercy on me? Would you have mercy on me? Because in the end, it doesn't matter at all what I do. It's all, it's all what you see. God, I need you. Have mercy on me. Oh, God, give me what I could never give myself. Clean me from the inside. Give me a new heart. Put a right spirit in me. Put your spirit in me. I need you. Thank you, Jesus. 
Thanks again for listening to this Bible teaching from Island Community Church. We want to encourage you to join us for worship in person soon. No podcast can replace God's good design of gathering with other believers in a local church. For more gospel resources and ways to connect with our church, visit us at iccmemphis.com. We offer a prayer of blessing for you from Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope.